Hi, podcast listener. Welcome to Truth About Exits, a show dedicated to pulling back the curtain to reveal what it really takes to get deals closed. You'll hear directly from founders of companies who have raised capital, sold their companies, and even those who acquire other companies for growth. I'm your host, Corin Woodmass. I'm a dealmaker, advisor, and when I'm not closing deals, I love to talk to others about their deals and what it took to get them closed. And now you can listen into these conversations too. For all the show notes and more resources, go to truthaboutexits.com. And we're live. Today on Truth About Exits, we have Nathan Collins joining us on the call. And before I introduce Nathan, I just want to talk about some high points and why you might find this episode interesting. So we met through a mutual friend, Emily, and I've since thanked her in person for connecting us, which is awesome. Nate's high points here. He grew up in a hippie commune. I can't say that without smiling. He had a career in investment as an investment manager at a private equity group focused on real estate. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Then he became CEO of a company called Samuel French, which is a theatrical licensing company founded in 1830. Then he led that company through a turnaround and exited the company. So we've got quite a lot to cover here. Nate, thanks for coming on the call. Hey, thank you for having me. Really happy to be here. Yes, please call me Nate. Because of my background, oftentimes people say, hey, what does Nate stand for. And of course, I tell them it's short for nature, which it's not, but uh, it seems appropriate. (laughs) Excellent. Well, we did talk about everything other than the hippie commune last time we were talking before we hit record. So could you tell us a little bit about what that was like growing up at a hippie commune and how did that come about? (laughs) Sure. You know, I just kind of have to start by saying I'm definitely the black sheep of my family. You know, I have a background in private equity and and capital markets. I am a true capitalist, but the irony is that I'm really also a socialist, right? I grew up on a hippie commune in Woodstock, New York, the Woodstock that you probably all know. And I like to say that I kind of went from commune to boardroom because that has a nice little ring to it. My parents were hippies and, you know, they dropped out in the late 60s and early 70s, trying to find a different lifestyle than what many, many of my contemporaries know. And so it was a big piece of land up in the Catskill Mountains that a bunch of families shared, and we shared responsibilities. And I was born in a log cabin, didn't have any electricity. And, you know, What's funny is my friends loved to come over and hang out during the day because we had all these areas to explore and there were lots of people on the commune and it was lots of fun and people would play music and stuff. But none of my friends liked to sleep over. And I think it was the fact that one, my my mom and my dad would serve us tahini on rice cakes, which was (laughs) far different than what most kids were eating at that time in the 70s. And then we didn't have TV. And if they wanted to go to the bathroom, they had to go about 200 yards to the outhouse. And not many kids were accustomed to going to outhouses. So I didn't have a lot of sleepovers as a a kid. (laughs) Wow, that's awesome. So you grew up on a commune. So when did the capitalism, like you said, the black sheep 
kind of angle take over? And how did you get into private equity in the first place? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure when it developed. I think I remember being a little kid and my dad saying something to the effect of, you want silver spoons, but you only have wooden spoons, or there's some adage that along those lines. But I guess he was always saying that I always had really expensive taste, but we didn't have anybody for it. And then I ended up going to school for architecture in university. And one day I remember meeting my mother's broker, investment broker, because she had a little money and she was always big into supporting local businesses. And he had a local investment broker and he was showing me that you could make money by trading or just by basically like video games. It looked like video games to me. And I thought that was the greatest thing I'd ever seen in my entire life. So I immediately switched my major and went into finance and just being a math nerd that I was gravitated or picked it up really quickly. And from there went into capital markets and then private equity, uh, real estate investment. It was really, really fun for me. But at the same time, I still have that inner hippie, right? I still look at things a little bit differently. Well, I guess everybody looks at things differently, but I like to think I look at things differently. And I still value a lot of the things that I learned growing up. For me, culture is paramount. And you know, when we here at Samuel French, when we were really building our culture, we thought that gratitude, trust, fun were keystones. And, you know, we do summer solstice parties because the summer solstice is the greatest day of the year. And at the end of meetings, we sit in a circle and we give gratitude to one another and thank each other for being awesome teammates. And that's really, I think that sets the tone for the organization, especially when you go through a really tough meeting where it's, there's a lot of tension at the end of that meeting, when you can say, hey, uh, you know, I want to thank you for giving me insights that I didn't have and pushing me on these details, that really sets a good tone for the organization. So big socialists still have a lot of inner hippie. <laughs> That's great. I'm sorry, big capitalists. I still have a lot of inner hippie. Yeah. yeah. I think there is actually a lot more crossover than most people think, especially when it comes to culture. And I just want to touch on a little bit more about the real estate side of things before we go into how you ended up becoming CEO of Samuel French. So what were you mostly focused on? When we spoke last time, we briefly spoke about value adds and, and turnarounds in real estate itself that later helped you in the company. Mm. So what was your main focus in the real estate side before switching over? Right. So I worked as uh, an, an asset manage, an asset manager in real estate investment. So basically, my company, we'd invest in large commercial buildings, office industrial, and then I would be in charge of managing that building once we've acquired it. But also, I was part of the acquisition process. So in real estate, of course, you buy buildings, and the way you value it is based on expected future cash flows. And what is, I guess, what's kind of interesting and what, where I think you're going with this is when I took over Samuel French, which is a theatrical licensing and publishing company, people were saying, what? How can you do that? You know nothing about theater. And it's, it's true. I really, I really didn't know anything about theater. 
And one of the things that I learned very quickly when I took over was, although it's a completely different industry, it's the exact same business model. So in theatrical licensing, what we did was we entered into agreements with playwrights, musical composers, lyricists to represent their shows in a specific territory for a specific amount of time. And the way that we entered into those agreements is that we'd pay them in advance. And that advance was based on expected future cash flows. So just like real estate, mm -hmm. right? You are making an analysis of how the cash flows, the future cash flows of this specific property will pan out. And then you acquire the property or the play or musical, and then you try to maximize those cash flows. So there were actually, it turned out that there was a big overlap. You know, I like to say that the theatrical licensing business is really it's intellectual property acquisition and exploitation. That is based, that's what it is at its foundation. That's, that's the socialist meets the capitalist right there. It's <laughs> <laughs> truly the capitalist. Of course, you know what? Just like every property, every piece of real estate is different. Every play or musical is different and it's beautiful art and, you know, not, no one can substitute another, right? It's, they're all unique. And I had the blessing to work in such a creative field with fantastic people. So I really enjoyed that. Awesome. So we've talked a little bit about Samuel French, but there's a couple pieces that we've spoken about, about this company that just blew my mind, really. <laughs> I looked at the website. I don't go to uh, the theater, to be completely honest. I, I have had no idea uh, what the company did. So I went and looked it up and found it in 1830. And as you mentioned, it's a family, uh, it was a family owned company. So there was multiple layers of family ownership over that time, which would have been pretty interesting to deal with. And you got voted as the CEO. So could you tell us a little bit about how, just quickly, how that happened? And then we can jump into what you did to once you were CEO. Sure. So yes, the company was founded in 1830. My great grandfather was the secretary of the company back in 1903, when the company was sold by Samuel French's son to the senior executive team of Samuel French. And my great-grandfather, being one of those members, thus became a shareholder. Those shares had kind of trickled down from generation to generation in our family. We were a minority shareholder of the company, but back in the early 2000s, my mother passed along some shares to me. And being the capitalist that I am, I quickly <laughs> joined the board of directors in this company, in this organization. And that was very exciting to me. But then in 2010, we realized as a board that we needed to take the company into in a different direction because at the time the, the company was insolvent. Fortunately, we had it's a very good business model that allowed for a lot of mismanagement over years, decades, but we were able to turn that around very quickly when I joined in January, 2011. Some very easy things, right? I don't want to say that I am a genius executive 
businessman. They are, I think anytime you enter into an organization that has had with the legacy of Samuel French, you're going to find that a lot of processes have just been around for a long time and maybe are not up to date. And that's how it was when I got to Samuel French. Our processes were outdated. Our systems were antiquated. Uh, that it was, I was ashamed or I was embarrassed to tell people where I worked because I was afraid they were going to look us up on the internet and see our website. And it was just such a bad website. So the first year that I was there, we really spent the time building a new website and then also integrating really state-of-the-art systems that created a scalable business for us because, you know, we represent over 10,000 titles in the U.S. and the U.K. and worldwide, but we have offices in New York, London, and L.A., so we needed a really good scalable system. And we also have a pretty significant retail operation, both we had it in brick and mortar and we also had it online, but we needed a system that, an e-commerce system that could work well with our licensing system. And we ended up building a, a ground up ERP basically, and then connected it with uh, some of the best SaaS systems, Salesforce and accounting systems and licensing systems. So we did a lot of work. We did tremendous amounts of work. I felt like every single month we were doing a new deployment of uh, a new version of the website or our systems, but it ended up working out really well. And when we sold to the company that just bought us, Concord, which is a much larger company, and they're primarily in the music business, but they've been entering the theatricals business recently. We were part of a roll-up of several companies in our space. We were able to migrate our systems to the Concord organization, and, and they're adopting most of what we've built. So that felt really good. We're all here at Samuel French really proud that we could build something that they valued so much. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the biggest issues with mergers and acquisitions, especially when a larger company acquires a smaller company is integrating all the all the systems in those companies. Yeah. Um, my wife was actually part of an integration project and it just, I'd see her at the end of the day and yeah, it wasn't something that looked like a, a lot of fun. So I'm not yeah, surprised that they, they, yeah, right. I'm not surprised that they wanted to integrate your systems if they were so up to date and humming along. So that's pretty awesome. Was there any, while you were going through this restructuring and optimizing the business or not really optimizing, I guess, just bringing it into this century. What was the biggest surprise for you? Was, was there anything you found that was just a gold mine that had been put off to the side? Or was it literally just bringing all the systems up to speed and then you could actually get some visibility into the company? Hmm. Let me think. So I would say that the greatest gold mine I found was there were people in the organization who had been buried under long-term managers. And these people were really knowledgeable and excited to move the company forward. And when I took over, right, there was naturally, there was some resistance. Well, let's just put it, start this way. 
when your company's insolvent, everybody hates you, right? And clearly you've been mismanaging the company <laughs> for a while. So, you know, our customers hated us because we were providing bad service. Our clients, the, the authors hated us because we were providing bad service. And our employees hated us because we were mismanaging the organization for a long time. So when I came in, some guy with no theatrical experience, of course, there were a bunch of managers who'd been leading the organization who were not happy about that. And, you know, obviously naturally have some attrition immediately. And we were able to take these employees who were waiting for this opportunity for a couple of years to really help take this organization into the future. And, you know, as somebody who knew nothing about our company, well, very little about our company and very little about the industry, I really relied on them to help to really build this strategy, build this strategy, create the goals, execute the goals. And I was there to support them. And that was, I think, instrumental in getting us out of where we were in the first few years. And some of those people are still with the team. And some people moved on because they had this great experience. And then our competitors saw what we were doing and got really excited or nervous <laughs> about what we were doing and stole some of our team members. But you know, it was great opportunities for them to go to competitors and continue to grow. And so I'm really happy for them. But, you know, most of what I did, because I didn't know much about the industry, was, you know, as I said, just helping them build the strategic initiatives and the policies for the organization. But then sitting back and just acting as like an investment advisor, right? I think you and I talked about this last time. Every single dollar that you spend in an organization is an investment. And so the different managers would put forth proposals like we should put, we should spend money on this new play, or we should be spending money on this new system, or we should be spending money on this summer solstice party. And whatever it was, it was my job to sit back and say, okay, what has the greatest ROI for this? $500 for this $5,000 for this $50,000. So I, I gotta, sorry, Matt, I got to jump in. <laughs> so I get that as a concept when it's a financial matter. So buying a new play or the systems, yeah. you can kind of work backwards. But how do you quantify an ROI for a summer solstice party? Attrition. You quantify it by attrition. And it's my job as the leader of the organization to make sure that the people that are on our team are engaged enough and compensated enough to stay for as long as we need them to be here. So, you know, sometimes it's not a direct correlation. Sometimes that $500 for a party or $5,000 for a party, you don't really, you can't say, oh, that is why this person stayed. But I can tell you this, when I first started, we had about 30% attrition annually. And last year we had less than 10%. And most of those people were leaving to like go back to school to get their master's or because they wanted to leave New York. It wasn't because they were unhappy with the organization. In fact, you know, a couple people last year came to me and they said, Hey, you know, I got this offer 
from somewhere else and I'm thinking of taking it and you know the salary is 20% higher can you match that and you know a couple times in those two times I was like I'm sorry I can't but you know what it sounds like a great opportunity if you take it I totally understand and then they came back to me like a week later and said you know what I've decided that to stay here just because I really love it here so you know, maybe, maybe it was something else, but I like to think it's just that they really liked being part of the culture here. Okay. Well, yeah, I think that's super underrated. Uh, so not just the ROI on the party, but also looking at longevity. And when you've got a hundred odd staff, that's a big deal. Yeah. If you're having to replace 30 people a year, that's expensive. <laughs> it is. And you know, like, I don't know what the exact numbers are. And I, I bet you can find out from HBS article or something to that effect or Inc., but you can figure out how much money you waste replacing people who've left. And I bet it's something about, I bet it's equivalent to 50% of their annual salary or more. And that, that adds up. So not spending that money on creating a fun and engaged culture is a poor decision from an mm. investment manager. Yeah. And it's not always about the direct return. So that's a... A future loss that you've avoided. <laughs> so that's that's really interesting. I like that approach to people management. That's cool. Oh, trust me, I've, I've also lost some great people. So <laughs> you know, I'm not infallible. I don't want anybody to, to think that I think I know all the answers because I don't. But uh, I, yeah. I love that. Well, that's the best part of business. Mark Cuban calls it winning at the sport of business. Is his one of his books or his book? I think it's the only one he's got. But I, I love that analogy to sports because you're not always going to win. You don't always know the outcome. You just get out there and play every day and see what happens and just keep trying to do better than yesterday. Yeah. That's that's all business really is. But no, it, it was cool that you um, mm. you realized that. That's awesome. You're incredibly humble for someone that's done, done what you've done. So let's dig into this a little bit deeper. So there's a couple high points here. You grew the core business by over 50% and EBITDA by 12 times through all of this. That's yeah. pretty impressive. And then, <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, you know, uh, th that was a mix of revenue growth and expense allocation. You know, we stopped doing dumb things. <laughs> like when I got here, we had our distribution warehouse, which we were doing ourselves on Sunset Boulevard, wow. which is perhaps some of the most expensive real estate in the country. So one of the first things that we did was we outsourced it to a great third-party facilitator in Illinois, which saved us like something like $700,000 a year right off the bat. So yeah, it was a mix of growing revenues and cutting expenses. But I don't think that we ended up cutting too many expenses. We just reallocated our investments. <laughs> so instead of wasting money by having our warehouse on Sunset Boulevard, we put that same money into new systems to make ourselves more efficient. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. And then as a group, um, you came up with the decision to sell the business. So once the business was solvent again and grew massively, over what period, how many years did that take, do you think, to grow the core business 50% and EBITDA by 12 times? Let's see. So the first couple of years was all about, was about managing our expenses. So 
that we didn't really see, we didn't see revenue growth there. And we stopped acquiring as many plays and musicals in those first few years. We did see bottom line growth because we were cutting some expenses, or actually a lot of expenses. But then we started after year two or three, once we had solidified our core business, right? Once we became solid in our core business, which is, I think you can't do anything until you are solid in your core business. We really started expanding into adjacent businesses or expanding our product offering. And we started focusing more on not just plays, but more on musicals. And that had uh, those musicals have greater popularity. They're more commercial and a lot more revenue streams. So that's how we ended up growing our licensing business. And then we started doing that really in year three, four. It takes a while. It's a long lead time. We had to convince a lot of people that we were no longer musty and dusty. And let me tell you that changing people's perception of an organization is a really large ship to turn. It takes a long time. And we spent a lot of time doing it, made a lot of missteps, but also learned a lot. And in retrospect, I see that I should have, as the leader of the organization, I was really focused on the internal organization and our culture, which is all very important. And you cannot you cannot ignore that at all. But I should have also been spending more time with our playwrights and the agents that represent them. So it took us a while. And by the time that we were selling the company, we had really established a great name in the industry, one of the major players in the industry. So, you know, that time period took six, seven years, and we sold at the end of eighth year. Wow. Okay, so that was time well spent. But like you said, you had to really focus on one aspect at a time. So then what was the catalyst to the board saying, we want to sell the business? Now we've done this turnaround. What was it, the steps leading up to the decision to start selling the company? Yeah, so I'd say that the reason that we ended up selling the company is because the original management team that bought the company from Samuel French's son back in 1903, those people are dead for a long time. And then, you know, their children inherited the stocks and then their children inherited the the shares. So by 2019, 2018, there is just not as much engagement from the shareholders as in the past. And these shareholders didn't buy the shares in the company as investments, right? They just inherited these shares from their relatives and they really didn't know that much about the company. Some did, some didn't, but they were removed. They were pretty far removed. So between the fact that they weren't really engaged in the company, that and then the fact that the transformation was pretty complete, right? We'd gone from worst to first. And then due to the fact that we're in really favorable economic conditions these days, right? We figured, or the shareholders kind of came to me, a few of them and said, hey, we'd really be interested in exploring a sale. So we got the board got together and we said, all right, let's go ahead and hire an investment banker and see what's out there. And we did that and 
we looked at the landscape of what was happening in our industry and we identified this one company that Concord that had was very active in acquiring our competitors and we approached them and said, Hey, would you like to make a deal? And the reason that we didn't do a process is because our business is really built on the ability to sign new deals, new deals for representing titles. And we felt that if we were running a process, word would get out to the street that we were selling, and then we would not be able to win new deals. We wouldn't win the rights to representing these new titles. And we didn't want to threaten our business like that. I think that's a really smart play uh, to, so to think did. about it holistically. Some people would think just go through a process to get the highest highest value. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's really smart. Yeah. Well, it worked out. It was really, I guess, it was very fortuitous that this one company that had bought a few of our companies was engaged in buying businesses not based on economics, but based on their strategy. Why is the term it was a strategic purchase. Yes. So they looked at us not from in the same way a private equity company would look at us or a bunch of investors, but they looked at us as a business would look at us and they saw how we fit and they saw our great catalog. They saw our great systems. They saw our great team. And it turns out that they offered us a deal that was just absolutely tremendous. I mean, it was... <laughs> much higher than we any of us had expected. And so even though I had kind of misgivings about selling the company because I'd spent so much time and effort on it and I liked executing on the strategies that we'd created, the deal was so good. My mandate was to maximize shareholder value and this was much higher than anybody had expected. So of course we said yes. But at the end of the day, it really turned out to be a win-win deal, right? The shareholders got a great price. And, you know, most of these shareholders, you know, they, it wasn't a bunch of wealthy investors. It was just librarians and retired people and somebody who works in retail. You know, they, they were just, this money really helped them out. So it was great for the shareholders. At the same time, it was great for Concord because they got a company that could provide them with some of the most advanced systems and processes in the industry and a great team with a culture of innovation and execution. So it turned out to be really good for everyone. So this kind of sounds like a dream at this point. Most people I talk to, as an advisor myself, most people I talk to want this outcome with their business. So I know as a deal maker, this is my job. I know that <laughs> that would not have been completely smooth sailing. And I also know that because of non-disclosures, you wouldn't be able to reveal every step of the way. But so the concept of Concord acquiring Samuel French was a no-brainer for them. It was a great offer on your side. How did the process actually go from the time you agreed to terms or signed to terms through diligence and actually handover and then what happened next? So were there any bumps in the road along the way and anything you'd do different? Yeah. You know, I think with any deal, well, let me back up. This was my first deal and this is the only deal that I've ever done. And I look forward to doing many more deals in the future, but I can only speak to this, my experience in this. But what I would say is 
I would imagine that every deal has bumps. And the greatest lesson that I learned is that you cannot underestimate the value of a good investment banker and the value of a good attorney, a good firm backing you up. They helped manage this process all the way through. And, you know, when I had originally started looking at investment bankers and attorneys to help out with a potential deal, you know, I did, I interviewed maybe nine investment bankers and 12 attorneys. And there were some who said they could do it for half of the price that we eventually agreed on with our investment bankers and attorneys. But I thank God every day. Well, I don't thank God. Uh, but I am very thankful that uh, <laughs> that we chose the this investment banker and these attorneys because they were professionals. They'd done it a thousand times and they made it so easy for me. Of course, I had a lot of sleepless nights and working on the weekend and late into night. But, you know, at the end of the day, they probably saved us millions of dollars in, uh, or we, the shareholders were able to receive millions of more dollars because of their efforts than had I hired some lesser banker or lesser attorneys. Yeah, I think that's a great recommendation there to do your diligence on advisors. The whole advisory team, build a deal team around you is what I normally advise clients to do. And sometimes you think that one buyer is enough. And in this case, it was, uh, which is awesome. But I can count on one hand the, the amount of times that that's probably the case. <laughs> um, but definitely a team is is there to, to help you. People that have done it before in your space, uh, whatever the industry is. And the, with the M&A space, specifically there's terms a buyer can ask for whatever they want <laughs> whether you should agree to that or whether you should toe the line is one thing uh, what standard is another and what we should negotiate and push back on is another thing so the, it's a it's more of an art than a science <laughs> yeah. definitely yeah but yeah having advisors there is is helpful and also someone to vent to on both sides we we often feel like therapists at some <laughs> at some <laughs> points in deals <laughs> yes I, th I definitely think that our attorneys and our investment banker were therapists to me at some times when i got really frustrated or confused it, it was great they were always there for me excellent cool so um Okay, so you went through the sale process. Yes, there was some bumps along the way, but you got it done. What are you doing now? So you're still involved with the company, right? Yes. So now I'm the general manager of the theatrical division of Concord, which is really exciting because, as I mentioned, they rolled up three of my other competitors and us. So that's four of us. And we're going through the integration right now, which is interesting to see. Fortunately, most of what they're doing is just adopting our system. So that makes it pretty easy. We're not like trying to jam a bunch of systems together or different processes together. They're basically pushing over their catalogs onto our system. And we're also updating like our front end to accommodate the different titles and the different labels. But, you know, what's great now is that not only are we representing the author's that Samuel French has represented over the past many, many decades, 
like Agatha Christie and Neil Simon and Ken Ludwig and new writers like Sarah Rule and older just people that you know, like Tennessee Williams and Thornton Wilder. But we also are working with all of the other catalogs, for example, all of the Andrew Lloyd Webber, all of the Rodgers and Hammerstein titles, the musicals that you know, like A Chorus Line, right? So it's been like The Wizard of Oz. It's all It's been really exciting. And because I feel I'm, I'm really happy that we were able to build the organization that we did because, and the team that we did, because this integration is going smoother than I expected. And sometimes I'm wondering, do they even need me? Right? <laughs> uh, because it's something to feel proud about, but it's also something to feel really nervous about. I'm like, my team has this. I don't. They don't even need me here. You know, I see the team like executing on everything, so <laughs> that's really fun. But I'm really just spending my time now supporting them supporting the team, being there for when they have issues that they need to either talk about or they need solutions to that and continuing to drive innovation. We had a big culture of innovation at Samuel French, and I really want to see that continue at Concord Theatricals and Concord in general, because innovation is important. So that's really what, what we're working on now. Okay, great. And if you can uh, talk a little bit about this, was part of the deal for the bulk or all of the executive team to come over? And is that for a period of time? And what's your thoughts on the team staying longer term? Is that part of the deal as well? Not the entire executive team came over, unfortunately. But, you know, the Concord had a group of really seasoned, experienced wonderful executives. And so they really had to make a decision on what the best team would be. So although we lost a few people, most of the team came over. I'd say we ended up with 90% of the team transferring over to Concord, which has been great. And they're doing a fantastic job now. It's sad to see some of those people who really spent their energy and time building salmon French, seeing them depart. But at the same time, you know, they can point to Samuel French and say, you know, I was part of that and they will find other great opportunities because of the experience. And they had a great, great chance to grow and learn and be part of a wonderful community that we had here for a long time. So in general, everybody's feeling pretty positive. Awesome. Well, Nate, I've really enjoyed this conversation. The story has had many twists and turns. I could keep talking for hours. But is there anything else you'd like to mention? Say you're talking to a a CEO or a founder of another company. Is there any advice you would give someone if they were going through a thought process of selling or how to think about the good and the bad side of selling maybe as a parting uh, thought? Huh. So I guess a couple things that I'd think about is one, know what your prospective buyer, your ideal buyer, what they're looking for, right? How are they going to value you? For some people, it might be a multiple of EBITDA. Other people might be a multiple of revenue or average monthly users, right? Just understand what's important to the perspective, to the ideal buyer, and then run your business based on that. 
And then the other thing I would say is be be prepared to work really hard when that deal is closing because it is a lot of work. And as you're building your company, make sure that you are very disciplined about keeping records and keeping those records accessible. I was, thank goodness we had good systems because the amount, the volume of information that they wanted was tremendous and overwhelming at times. And we were able to pull stuff up really easily, but they still wanted more. So just have a good file maintenance system. And then finally, you know, if you are not prepared to see somebody else raise your children, then don't stay with the company after it's sold because that's basically what happens, right? You are giving ownership over to somebody else and they're going to do it differently. And they may do it great or they may do it really poorly, but either way, you're going to disagree with the way they're doing it. So just keep that in mind. Well, that's three really strong points there. (laughs) I love that. I want to highlight two parts of that. Uh, The first two that you mentioned, so understanding the the buyer type. Uh, You mentioned that the group Concord, company Concord, um, offered a way higher valuation for the business than you were expecting. And that's partly because, like you mentioned, they were looking at different drivers of value than, say, a financial buyer like a private equity group or something like that would look at the business. So knowing who you're talking to or who you would appeal to is really good. But also you mentioned the diligence process. Now, I just want to mention one more thing about diligence. Yes, diligence is painful. And there's a lot of checklists to go through and checklists of checklists. And it, it can get at some points you always feel, is this even worth it? At some point during the the transaction, that'll always happen. And the thing to keep in mind here is this is a big transaction. The more zeros on the end, the more nervous the people in the transaction are. The buy side are human (laughs) as well. So remember that. And also, it's not typically the people you're dealing with on the buy side that are asking these questions. It's their attorneys and it's also their lending sources. So whoever they're getting finance from also needs their checkboxes covered as well. So their M&A attorney and their financing partners usually drive the bulk of that load. Uh, We're going through a transaction right now with a company that's actually uh, going public at the same time, which is very interesting. And they have extra oversight because they're about to become a public company. So that raises complexity. But yes, be 100% willing to work three times harder during the diligence phase. And a lot of the time, the the quicker you can get back uh, to those questions and provide the information, provide more information than they need, that's what gets the deal closed at the end of the day and gets you out of the deal quicker and onto the next piece. So uh, definitely keep that in mind. Nate, this has been super, it's been a great conversation. I, like I said, I could keep talking all day about this stuff, but uh, we do have other, both of us have other things to go do today. So thank you once again for coming on the show. And if you're open to it and people wanted to just reach out to you and find out more or 
just thank you for coming on to the the show. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Well, thank you for inviting me. It was really a pleasure sharing this. And also, maybe I wish that I had you as an advisor back six months ago, because you know you can never have enough advisors when you're going through such a process or a big event like this. But let's see, you can, anybody can reach out. I'd be happy to talk to people and share experiences. My email address is ncollins, as in Nate Collins, ncollins00 at gmail.com. Perfect. Awesome. I'll put that in the show notes as well. And thank you once again for coming on the show, Nate. I hope the audience gets a lot out of today's call. And yeah, I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much. Cheers. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Truth About Exits. Now, whenever you're ready, here are three ways I can help you. If your company is doing between 10 to 50 million plus in revenue and you want help to plan your perfect exit to achieve the highest value and best deal terms possible, or if you'd like advice on acquiring other companies to continue to grow your company, we can help. Go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash consult. There you'll see a simple form to tell us a little bit more about you, your company, and your goals, and my team and I will take it from there. So go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash consult. The second way I can help is become a guest on our show. If you've had a successful exit, you want to share your story, or if you're actively acquiring other businesses and want to share your criteria with our audience, go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash guest. Let's connect and I'd love to talk to you. The third way I can help you is one of my favorite things in the entire world is sharing the truth about exit stories with other entrepreneurs by speaking at events all over the world. So far, I've had the privilege of speaking at events in the US, Canada, UK, Spain, Germany, Ukraine, Czech Republic, over in Asia, China, Hong Kong, Thailand, and even Australia. If you'd like me to speak at your next event, go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash speaker and tell me a little bit more about your event and we'll go from there. Thanks for listening and I'll see you on the next episode.